0: This is Faith Revisited. Welcome to the podcast. On Faith Revisited, we'll talk about our own church as we're constantly trying to adapt to an ever-changing world as a downtown historic church. We'll talk about United Methodist matters as our denomination faces an exciting and uncertain future. Hey, everybody, this is Ben here for another episode of the Faith Revisited podcast. We're back with our friend Lynn Wilson, uh, who's been on a couple of times to have conversations about leadership and creativity. Uh, But today uh, we want him to put on his professional hat uh, because Lynn is also the founder and operator. And I know there's a more official professional title uh, of a wonderful uh, new new ish, newer uh, Christian publishing arm, and uh, we want to talk about what Christian publishing the world and what it looks like. So, Lynn, welcome back. Tell us, uh, sort of uh, update us on what you're doing and what Invite
1: Resources is. Thanks, Ben. It's good to be here with you again. Uh, yeah, Invite, we are, we hit our three-year mark in March, so I was joking this morning in a meeting, I'm not sure how much longer I can play the new guy card. Uh, <laughs> that we've, we've been around a little bit, but uh, just within that window you know, we started the first day of shelter in place. And uh, just since that moment to today, it seems like there's just been a world of change in, in so many sectors and that's true in publishing as well. So we had to kind of get up to speed with where publishing is as a startup, but then also be able to move and adapt quickly and you know, with the flow of, of change as it's happening in real time. So it's it's been a ride, but it's, it's it seems to be working. We're, we're growing to we get um, more inquiries and proposals and i know what to do with most of the time so it's pretty exciting
0: that's great take us uh just just kind of hard and fast through some of your numbers if you can just so we understand and appreciate sort of the scale of how invite has grown sort of that first year second year third year and sort of what you're looking at into year four in
1: terms of how you
0: define metrics in your world
1: sure that's a good question well we had uh, our first prototype title which was done Uh, here uh, for our founding pastor at our local church that that helped launch us, uh, St. Andrew Methodist here in Plano. So that was our prototype in 2021 title that year. And then in 2021, we did six titles. That was what you could, I now call the beta phase. I wasn't smart enough to recognize it for what it was as we were doing it. But uh, so that was six in in 2021. We did um, 12 and 22. And I think we're on target for Twenty this calendar year, and maybe thirty-five to forty in twenty twenty-four. So we we're basically doubling almost every year. And that that will obviously scale down at some point. We can't <laughs> we won't be able to do that indefinitely. But but yeah, you can kind of tell by the the rate of inquiry. And I've got probably fifty-five to sixty really viable, interesting uh, titles that we're in development on right now as well. So
0: that's fantastic. So. Tell us a little bit, just because you have, I mean, it's more than just invite resources. This is sort of the next iteration of publishing that you have um, been a part of. Uh, Tell us a little bit about, you you know, your former life in publishing.
1: Sure. Yeah, to understand invite, you have to kind of understand some of the context and backstory. Um, I got my start in... Uh, ministry at Gingersburg Church underneath Mike Slaughter. So I, I joined the staff there in 1995. Anybody who's been around Methodism for any period of time has likely heard the story, but we we grew exponentially. We we went from a 1,000 a weekend to 3,000 a weekend, my first two years on staff there. And I was 24, 25, 26 years old. I thought that was normal, Ben. I just was like, yeah, sure. You just do this and people come by the droves, right? And, uh, but we started uh, writing and, and speaking and conferencing about what was happening. Mike had already done one previous title with Abingdon. I did my first title with Abingdon at the time and give you an idea about how things have changed since, and that was the height of the church growth movement. Okay. So there was, um, just tons and tons of work coming out around strategies, methodologies for church growth. No one was questioning whether church growth was even a viable category. It was just, we were all working in it. And the average title at that time did around 3000 units. Uh, Wired Church, my first title, did 13,000, so I was a runaway bestseller. And uh, to give you an idea, 20 years later, I, I was still receiving speaking gig opportunities based on that book. So, you know, if you can get 10,000 plus, it's considered crazy good in, in Christian publishing. Uh, the time, I, I did nine titles uh, from that moment through the 2000s at Raymond Mountain Ministry with my partner, Jason Moore. It's called Midnight Oil Productions. And then I went to work at Abingdon Press around 2010, late 2010. And uh, I was told that the average title had dropped to around 2000 units lifetime at that point. And during that window, it was hard to hit two. Uh, I, was, I wasn't was there that long, but um, I also saw a phenomenon, Ben, that everybody that I worked with, and I worked with a lot of folks in our Methodist tribe, acquired 55 titles, a lot of names you would know. And everybody had the same experience I had. I felt like as a writer that when I submitted a manuscript, it went into a black hole. Like I had no idea, you know, I, okay, I got a cover one day in the email. Okay, nice cover. I had no input into it, but there it is. You know, and then um, they came out another day. There was just very little sense of collaboration. And when I got inside, I discovered that the way it operated was that there was a 12-month business plan attached to a, a title and that the, the title would live or die on its own. At the same time, one of the works I was working on was, uh, it was called the Elder Statesman of Church Leadership. It was a collection of sayings by Lyle Schaller, who was kind of the king of, of church leadership. And it was his last title. It was uh, written by Warren Bird with Lyle helping. Lyle was like 91 or 92 at the time. He was living in Chicago. <clears throat> so I was going back and looking at the history of Lyle Schaller. I went down to the basement of Abingdon and I found this really cool. And by the way, the basement at Abedin was amazing. This is when it was downtown Nashville. Like I found a room that had uh, Wesley and Whitfield original works. It had Bibles from 1738. They were all just stacked up on a shelf. You know, they're just sitting there. I mean, you know, if, if I had uh worse character, I would have just pocketed a couple of those and taken them home because they were just sitting there, you know, <laughs> thought about it. <laughs> so anyway, there's this box down there and it's got all this original Lyle Shower content from, the 19 early 1960s and it's fascinating i'm going through and looking at the editor and the conversations they were having he was a civil engineer he had four master's degrees at age 28 just an overachiever doing all this stuff and he started analyzing church practices and he wanted to bring civil engineering mindset to the practice of church like how far is the parking lot to the front door and all these kind of things and he had some, he was asking really good needed questions at the time But what was really interesting from a publishing standpoint was that his first three books were bombs. Then like, they just didn't, they didn't go anywhere. And it wasn't until his fourth one that he began to really find his voice and to take off. And I thought, this is how it's supposed to be. Like you you come alongside an author and you partner with the author and you collaborate together. And instead of having this kind of transactional relationship where you passively wait around, this was my perception, perhaps not fair to Abedin at the time. My perception was that you passively sit and wait around for a manuscript to arrive on your desk and you evaluate it, accept it or reject it based on its own terms. And there's no sense of relationship with the author. There's no sense of shared ministry. There's no sense of, of kind of kingdom values there. And I and I was like, look what having I mean, this bestseller ever was a was the result of a several year investment by that that editor in the author's development. So I really wanted to carry that forward. As we fast forward eight years, I left Amingdon. Back in local church and and uh, here at St. Andrew, we, uh, our senior associate is now the senior pastor, Arthur Jones, uh, had also published, he had published with his dad, Scott Jones. And so we both had the same kind of shared frustrations about the process. And we said, there's gotta be a better way to do this. And so when we, when shelter in place hit, we were like, gosh, no better time to, to start than right now, everybody's sitting around doing nothing. So let's, let's start this and, you know, see what happens. And so from day one we've tried to really create a sense of values that i think are a bit more kingdom oriented than what you get in most christian publishing environments um you know it's i think most christian publishing is indistinguishable from secular publishing not i'm not talking about it in its practices but i'm talking about it in its ethos and how it approaches the relationship and what it's doing in ministry so i'm trying to create the the business term for our unique selling proposition if you will it's simply a better author experience. I want our authors to feel uh, cared for, uh, to feel valued, uh, to feel like they we're partnering with them in uh, and, and the publication of a message that needs to be said, that needs to be put out there, you know, for for the community. Uh, so that's really what we've tried to do from the start. Um, so I've talked a long time. There you go.
0: Oh, no, no, that's really good because um, I've heard it explained and, and, and you know, just a full disclosure to the audience, you know, writing has been something that I've enjoyed. I've got a blog. It's something I've wanted to delve more deeper into um, for years now. And and so I've had friends, you know, that, that have been in the publishing world or had things published. And one of the ways that they explained it to me, and, and I think you you just named the other side of a gap, but, but it's the gap that I want to name here. And that is, Someone said there was a day when a publisher would accept a work and basically it was this honor because they would do the legwork of promotion and you just showed up when they told you to show up to, to be a face behind an author's name and yada, yada, yada. And then somewhere along the way, budgets uh, were cut. And I think part of this was the evolution of the digital world as mm-hmm. well as I understand it, um, where where promoting books was no longer the same as it used to be. I guess mostly a physical world 30 years ago to now. How to, And so a lot of publishers just kind of said, you know, listen, we got to have an author that has a platform. We've got to have an author that knows how to self-promote, you know, because basically it's now on the author to do the promotion and we're simply the publishing arm, which is why a lot of authors are opting to self-publish because they get a larger profit share if they're already doing all of the, or the majority of the promotional work. So, and I hear you speaking a little bit differently in terms of your vision for a publishing world. So that's not really, that's not really a question so much as can you unpack sort of those tensions a little bit in how you, you know, moving, um, you know, forward.
1: It's it's a great prompt because you're describing the reality of the world that I moved into when I went to work at Abingdon in twenty uh, January twenty eleven is when I started on staff officially there, and right around that same time, Mike Hyatt Michael Hyatt uh, released platform and he had been he had been the senior acquisitions editor at Thomas Nelson so that was the same role that I had at Abingdon. Uh, for the leadership line. And then he moved from there to the CEO of Thomas Nelson. And then he left Thomas Nelson because he recognized this dynamic. This was just beginning to emerge. And so he wanted to uh, to work directly with authors without the apparatus of traditional publishing around him to teach authors how to do the work of self-publishing. Because at that time, it was all promise. Like, oh, we got all these tools, we can do it ourselves directly. Um, And so there was this idea that as an author, who needs the publisher anymore? And most publishers uh, kind of got bunkered a little bit you know, as a result of that. They were like, well, we're gonna continue to do what we do. And yes, you have to have a platform and you have to do all these things. And from the authors, and since I've lived both these realities, I kind of see both these sides, right? So the authors are saying, well, okay, then why do I need you? Like, if I've got a platform and I've already got my own world, then I don't see a lot of extra value or benefit you know, to this relationship. Now, 10 years forward, people began to recognize the limits and and the way in which the apparatus of self-publishing has um, become its own machine and the vast majority of people who invest in trying to self-publish are never able to move beyond their own immediate networks of people because most of the time you can look at a book and say yeah that's a self-pub book and and there's still this idea that it's a little bit less than uh it's less than professional you know in, in some capacity uh, so you have this kind of like ongoing stigma of self-publishing that's never really died combined with this this limitation because what what i've learned when i've worked especially i'll say a lot of what we do is large church pastors and most uh not all in fact it's increasingly less so this way but early on there was a lot of large church pastors and most large church pastors would tell me listen i don't want to be ceo of lynnwilson.inc you know, like I've got a I've got a full time job. I got a ministry. I want to do this. If I'm able to publish and get this message out, great. But the work that's required to do what the the modern industry says to do is just not something I truly want to invest in. Now, that maybe five to ten percent of authors are, are are good enough promoters that they're able to do that. Vast majority are not. So we're trying to move beyond. the the description you gave is is, was a reality, you know, in 2010, early 20 teens, and now we're trying to move into a new world that's kind of beyond that, that says, No, there is a value to a traditional publishing relationship, but it's not going to be that old kind of passive, uh, obscure, hard to understand kind of world, I'm trying to create a new transparent, collaborative kind of partnership world where we can bring the best of traditional publishing uh, in terms of the expertise that we can bring to this process to make the book better, but also some of the savvy that you can get with understanding how digital markets work and, uh, and what you need to do in order to be able to, um, to get a book out to an audience, you know, this day and time. So really we're trying to kind of bring the best of those two previous paradigms into one new reality.
0: Nice. What are you looking for in in uh, a title that you want to publish what what's i I know i know you're 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 as much as you're um growing you're you're going wider and you know in your spectrum i i get that but sort of what is what are just some basics of kind of the paradigm you're you're sort of you know looking for in terms of this is a title i might want to move forward with
1: so there's there's a A couple of industry answers and a couple of individual kind of values answers that I can give to this question Uh, in terms of the uh, the industry. Very few people in the church world understand how to write what publishers call the trade, how to write to the trade. Um, The trade is the book you see sitting on the shelf at Target. Uh, and, And my personal pet theory for why this is Ben is that. Seminary ruins us. We develop a uh, we develop a language, but not only that, we develop a tone and a perception of our audience that's overly professionalized. So we we without even meaning to, we talk in a language that the vast majority of nominal and non Christians have no idea what we're saying, uh, nor do they care to learn. And uh, very few people are effective in ministry, in my opinion, right now, at being able to to write. Now, there's more people who are effective as preachers uh, being able to overcome this. But as writers, it's an entirely different thing. And to be able to write in a way that makes sense uh, to the trade and not to the the confined world of leadership. You know, it's funny, Ben. I, I worked from 2012 to 2016. I worked at a Presbyterian church in Georgia. And I call it my Presbyterian missionary journey during that time. And, and since I'm a lay person, I'm not ordained. It was nice because I can, you know, God says, go here. I'm like, okay, cool. Yeah, yeah. So I went and, and one of the things that was so shocking about that was that, you know, in our world, Adam Hamilton has been in the last 20 years, the by far the biggest seller, yeah. you know, the biggest author in terms of units sold. And so there's this perception, he's kind of this, you know, king of authors or writers, but at Peachtree, which was the largest PCUSA church in the con- in the country, and none of the staffers I worked with had ever heard of Adam Hamilton. And, and I always kind of thought we as Methodists were a little bit sectarian, oh, yeah. but that was shocking to see. Here's another fellow, quote unquote, mainline denomination, biggest in the country. Nobody there on staff knew anything about. And, and I just thought, you know, we Methodists are, are so sectarian. We're so insular. And so many titles that I get reflect that. People are writing about Methodism to other Methodists. And yeah. you know, they're not naming it as such that's the world they're living in it it comes through loud and clear um and and a lot of my fellow methodists have complained about the evangelical publishing apparatus but you got to give credit to the evangelical world for for speaking to a broader audience uh and and most of them are, are a lot better at that than than the people that i've known in the methodist world so that's that's one thing is i'm trying to help our authors understand what it means to write trade uh to write And one one story that I give to this is that from that first book I did at at Genghisburg, The Wire Church, uh, and the nine titles I did through the 2000s, I had a big fight with my wife in 2010, because I was like, so you never read my books. And so she said, well, they're church nerd books. And I was like, well, that's true. They are church nerd books. And so I thought I need to do something different. And so I tried the book I released in 2015. It's called Think Like a Five-Year-Old. So my last title with Havington. that was my first attempt to write trade my first attempt to write a book it's basically a theology of creativity yeah. that is not positioned as such uh, it's positioned as in a very kind of personal development kind of way like reclaim the, you know the creative vibes you once had but you lost uh, so so yeah that's an example of that just kind of learning how to position books properly
0: well and, and a side note there and I want you to keep going but a side note I think for a lot of people in the Methodist world who know about Adam and and his ability to pretty much publish, you know, it's almost like he's got a standing agreement with Abingdon that pretty much any sermon series he has becomes a book. But what people I don't think realize or fully appreciate is that Adam has that luxury now because he's built such a publishing platform that that it it almost becomes a self-perpetuating machine. And and he is this generation in that regard, this generation's Arthur J. Moore. When I was a kid in the 80s and 90s, every Sunday school class in my church, adult Sunday school class, studied one of the Arthur J. Moore books. And it was always some quippy sermon series, you know, thing, you know, six lessons from the peanuts or, you know, eight reasons why church needs to blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And, and every class and they love Bishop Moore's and it was good. It was accessible. It was churchy, but it was for a Sunday school class. Perfect. And people don't think appreciate that, that Adam has, has, has really gotten that niche in the Methodist world that, that you ask an adult Sunday school class in a Methodist church, what are y'all studying over the next year? And I'll bet you they'll name two or three Adam Hamilton books. <laughs> you know, it, it just is, and it's great. But that's a niche yep. unto itself that most of us cannot tap into because um, you pretty much get one of those <laughs> a generation. And when adult Sunday school classes in the Methodist world like you as an author, I mean, they're all in.
1: So yeah, yeah. Uh,
0: so we got right to trade. What else are you looking for?
1: That that. So gonna- yeah, yeah. So from a from a value standpoint. We ha- are are desperately trying to rise above all the brouhaha that's happening right now. You know, we're trying to say that uh, we're not taking a stance here in terms of the questions of disaffiliation or or denominational, you know, uh, alignment. Um, and the way I say this, when I, I put this front and center on the slide, because it means a lot to me, I say we're high on Jesus, we're low on politics, and we're biased towards innovation. So the only real true filter for me is I have a high Christology and I, and I, that's a, that's a deal breaker. I won't publish something that's low on Christology. I prefer to, to publish books that are, when I say low on politics, I don't mean apolitical. I just don't mean ideological or polemical, wow. you know? Uh, and so, um, we, we distinguish that way. In fact, we have a few, we have books from people that are left of center books that are people right of center. In fact, I've got eight denominations represented now at this point. And, um, and that's what we want. We want to be able to kind of rise above that and say, if you want to talk about Jesus, let's do that. And, uh, and so that's, that's something that's really important to me as well.
0: Nice. What other, what other things do you write the trade right beyond divisions is sort of the notes I'm sitting here taking, wrote it down. Other, other things you specifically kind of look for with authors.
1: When I talk to uh, our, I'm training up a someone who's going to become our full-time content editor here uh, as she gets more and more into the role. And um, I told her early on that to me, there's, there's three kind of buckets here. You, ha- you got to have something to say and you got to have the writing chops to say it, and the platform to stand on. Very few people have all those three of those things kind of prepackaged. So I'm interested, and I I brought this to Abingdon too, and I didn't realize I did until people told me I did, but um, I I like to cultivate. I like to find people, and to me, the only non-negotiable there is something to say. A lot of publishers, and and, and this is not directed at uh, Abingdon so much as it might be directed at uh, one of the the Christian imprints that's been bought up by the big five in New York. Sometimes you'll look at a, a Christian book and you'll think like, okay, famous person, but there's not really a whole lot here, you know, in terms of something to say, right? Um, so that to me is the non-negotiable. If you have something to say, then you may or may not have the writing platform or the writing chops. You may or may not have the platform, but those are all things that we can cultivate, but it's it's that core work. And, and when I say something to say, that's usually comes out of blood. Like my... One of my favorite quotes is from Ernest Hemingway, who says that writing is easy. All you got to do is is uh, open up a vein and bleed, and yeah. and that's that's true in ministry. And, and so we some people have a very detached kind of professional white paper approach to ministry, and I'm not as interested in those books. I, I think books the books that that move people and that change communities and hearts and lives come from personal pain. Your your ministry and your power comes from your pain, and so I want people who are writing out of that pain. Um, because that's where the Holy spirit can pick up our weaknesses and, and, and make change happen. So yeah, there's a little bit of bleeding that has to happen and and, and not everybody is uh, willing to do the, the vulnerability and the courage it takes to do that, you know?
0: Well, and if we think about it, some of the best writers that most people, at least in the nonfiction world and sometimes in the fiction world too, it's just a little more metaphorical or roundabout that you get there. Um, but I'd be willing to bet most people, your favorite writers, are your some of the most vulnerable writers. Sure,
1: sure. like a Brene Brown or an Anne Lamont or people exactly. like that. Exactly.
0: Those were two names that were right on the, the the forefront of my mind. You know, you 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 read or listen to either of those two, Brene Brown and Anne Lamont. I mean, they – vulnerability is where they write out of. Now um, – you know, Anne Lamont tends to bring a whole bunch of sarcasm and, and uh and, and whatnot that she weaves into hers. Uh, Brene Brown does too, and, and I think she does a beautiful job. Brene Brown, I think, even in a in a different way, says it so clearly, clairvoyantly and courageously.
1: Um, yeah. no, no, speaking of her, yeah. uh, one, one thing that's that's the challenge here, and this would be a caution to anyone who's listening who's who's into this, is you can't books aren't therapy. Right. So you can't you can't write it just out of your pain, but there you have to have this kind of two minds about your work and to be able to integrate those. So at the same time, you're able to reflect on your own history, but do it in a way that is that is whole and is able to minister to others at the same time. Right. And that's not easy to do, uh, because a lot of times I've discovered that I tell people to. Open up a vein and bleed. I get back a book that's really a, a chapter that needs to be in therapy. It's not a book to publish, right? <laughs>
0: well, and, and yeah, and, and an example that comes to mind immediately, and I've been open about it on this podcast. I'm a person in long term recovery now, and and one of the things that my sponsor told me early on was he said, you know, go to meet, obviously go to meetings. Uh, he said, you know, if you feel comfortable, share. He said, but now remember this: sharing in AA is not your own therapy. There's some stuff you're going to hear that you need to take to the therapist. He said, every time you share, you need to share toward the solution. You know, mm-hmm. in, in Alcoholics Anonymous, we talk about a solution, a spiritual transformation that we have found and are finding is the, the paradox of recovery. That, As Wesley said, I, am sa- I was saved, I am saved, I am being saved. Yes. But he said, you're always sharing toward a solution so that others can hear both their story and a solution they want to go to also.
1: That's right.
0: Hearing that and what you're saying in the writing.
1: That's right. Yes. And, and a lot of times you need a lot of distance to be able to truly exactly. see. Um, there's, there's some stuff that I was going through at one point in my life, and it was, it was probably 10 years gone from the intensity of that period before I could really truly understand what I perceived to be God's thoughts about those issues, if mm-hmm. that makes sense.
0: Yeah, um, one of the one of the newer books, and, and this is a you know a, a more mainstream book, but um, I highly recommend just as an example of what Lynn's talking about is if if Matthew Perry, you know the actor from yes. Prince, his his auto, uh, auto his memoir mm-hmm. is all about his addiction, and one of the things that I was blown away by is i just thought it was just going to be like you know this torrid you know diary of all the famous people and ways he's messed up and all stuff but he very beautifully and systematically through the book worked through his addiction toward a solution in his recovery and i was like wow this is almost a blueprint for recovery talks of how to move you know in recovery we talk about you share how it was what changed how life is now that's mm. the basic mm-hmm. blueprint of, of sharing. So I hear that in how you're talking about writing from that vulnerable place. How was the pain? What changed in your life and how is your life now or whatever it is you're writing about in light of that
1: transformation? Um, and, and there's a humility about that, that, um, that I think connects to all good ministry. Yeah. Right. So, so, you know, we, we've been trained and, and I think you're just old enough to have come out of this kind of late-era seminary worldview that's that's completely professionalized and it treats it the same way you'd treat how to become a you know a doctor of medicine or anything else, right? That's a detached, more professionalized approach with a with a little nod spiritual formation sometimes. I mean, I don't want to completely you know dismiss that, but but um, I think the best ministry moving forward is going to be ministry that's authentic, that comes from our own journey and has lived that we're living the journey with the people that we're in community with. Right. And that's, uh, and that's what we're talking about here. You know, yeah. I saw the, the Matthew Perry, I didn't, haven't read the book, but I saw this Diane Sawyer interview. And I thought there's a man who's had a lot of good counseling. Yeah. <laughs>
0: He, he and he talks about that, and he's had a, a lot of tries at rehab. Um, but but yeah, it's 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 definitely that's really good. So, Lynn, this is so good. And and for anyone out there who is wanting to write more, um, break into the world, you know, just learn about this. What would you say to um, an unpublished author, someone who is is yet to publish their first work? What what would you say are the two or three or four just quick bullet points of here's what you need to be doing.
1: We're, uh, a couple things. Um, one, the the expectations for what it takes are are continue to evolve. I, I quoted a couple of numbers there earlier for you about what average books do. Publishers Weekly released a stat about a year ago now that said the average nonfiction title is 500 units lifetime. So it's really interesting now that books, I, and I think what's happening, is that books used to be, if you're familiar with the business model of a sales funnel, uh, the books used to be at the top of the funnel. So it was your first engagement with a content creator. Um, now it's kind of further down the funnel, like you, like this podcast would be someone's first engagement with your thoughts, uh, you know, or you might have a, a, a Substack subscription or something, right? But, but books aren't the impulse buy anymore. Books are something that's, that's further down. So you have, when you're writing now, you have to really consider who am i writing am i writing to the people that are, that are deep on an idea and then what am i trying to solve with this because there are there's really four types of nonfiction books there is a there's an academic work which is primarily concerned with definitions so if you're going argue, to argue over like like the book i just did with Lynn sweet we published it in in december uh, last year it's called telos and we're basically trying to redefine kingdom Uh, or try to which is kind of crazy, like how many books have been written on the kingdom. So but that's, that's, that's an academic work. A second work, which is the vast majority of nonfiction works are how to's and these are specific problem solving kind of books, people only at this point, pick up a book, if they need a deep dive on a problem they cannot solve otherwise, a shallow dive is a Google search right? A a deep Mm -hmm. dive is something that's a complicated problem. I recognize it's a complicated problem. I need an expert to help me walk through the entire issue. So vast majority of nonfiction are all those kind of how-tos, problem-solving books. The third one is what we call um, narrative nonfiction. So if you've ever read Eric Larson or Laura Hillenbrand, love Laura Hillenbrand who wrote um, Unbroken, if you've read Unbroken, yeah, yeah. oh my gosh. So where you're reading nonfiction, but it reads like a story, right? It reads like a narrative, yeah. And, And then the fourth, is the combination of all those three, which is what um, uh, Sean Coyne, a longtime Big Five editor, calls the Big Idea book. And when I, but, but here's the thing, Ben, when I present this rubric to authors, everybody's like, well, I want the Big Idea book. It's like, well, yes, we all want the Big Idea book, but it's extremely hard to pull off because if you look at, like, look at Outliers uh, by Gladwell, Outliers is a great example of someone who introduces a story to ask a question which introduces a, a totally new way of looking at things and provides the specific how-tos to respond to that. A Breath by James Nestor is another example of a very successful big idea book in the last few years. But you've gotta be able to tell good stories. You've gotta be able to have a complete mastery over a topic to be able to address it and redefine it. And then you have gotta be able to provide the how-tos that leave people with the takeaways. So a big idea book is a heavy lift and I don't think people can write more than one or two of those a decade at the most.
0: Wouldn't you say though, I mean, you use Gladwell and I love Gladwell, but I mean, he he's almost a unicorn in the sense that I really think he's writing academically, but I don't think he knows how to write except through stories. Yeah. (laughs) And, And then, and then, and then he just puts it in such a narrative form that, you know, they just become these big idea books. Um,
1: yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. But see, even there, he, he, I became a huge Gladwell fan after Tipping Point and Outliers. And then I saw a couple of years ago, he was going to come out with a book called Bomber Mafia. And I was like, all right, the next Gladwell. So I, I never pre ordered, but I pre-ordered the book. Yeah. And, uh, and I got it. And I was so disappointed. It, it was a series of podcast episodes that he had put on paper. And it just didn't have that unifying thesis, that kind of big idea, flip the world over kind of approach that he had yeah. done so well, you know. Yeah. So it's not, it's not easy to do it. Even the people who do it well don't always do it.
0: That's good. These are, these are such good tips. Um, I want to take the last minute and, and, and just give you a chance to, to, to plug invite. I follow your social media. I follow when y'all promote new, new uh, titles and whatnot. It's really exciting. And I think, I've, I I mean, I'm not an early adopter of many things, but I think I accidentally became an early adopter of this. Cause like you said, <laughs> right when COVID sort of hit, you sort of said, Hey, I got this publishing thing. And I was like, well, that's interesting. Let's take a look. Um, what, what are you excited most about with invite resources over the next six months?
1: I just came out of uh, several budget meetings this week. We actually laid out the vision for the next three years. We're, um, we're, we're going to hit sustainability on the press, um, which capacity means, uh, probably two to three titles a month, uh, depending on how it flows. Uh, We're we're basically targeting Tuesdays as as launch days. Uh, At the same time, we're going to be expanding uh, long-term into two different or three different areas. I, I think books... I have a books plus approach, Ben. So I say it's not just the book, but it's all the stuff that goes with the book that that really is gonna help push the book. So my first prototype, if you go on the site and you look at That's Good News by Shane Bishop, we released a kit, so it's a leader's kit. So the book is a trade book. It's it's for people who are scared to death of actually talking, saying the word Jesus to a stranger or talking about their faith in public. How do you even do that? And that's something that probably every Christian has felt at some point in their lives. They don't feel, how do you even approach that? You don't want to be the crazy person, right? So how do you do it? Uh, so um, the book addresses that. The kit addresses how to start an evangelism movement in your local community. So we're going to do more and more of this kind of books plus approach where we create supplemental resources around a title. Uh, we're also looking at invite media. Invite media will become, uh, well, it's, it's not even defined fully. So I'm really cautious about saying too much about it, but it's uh, it'll, it'll be... My, my thought here is it goes back to that sales funnel. The need goes back to the idea that the book is down the funnel. The top of the funnel are Instagram reels, podcasts, all the different kind of short form audio and visual based content. Um, and we're publishing books that are further down. How do you get that content up to the top of that funnel in ways that people can engage with it with very low commitment? That's what we're trying to answer with Invite Media, and, and we'll be prototyping that in the next 12 months. And then we're, we're thinking about a conference. We're thinking about actually having a live gathering of folks, and uh, and that's very embryonic. But we're you know kind of thinking through what that would look like and what you know what we're trying to accomplish with it. But but to me, invite is is much more than a press. We we named it Invite Resources, not Invite Press, because I want a broader vision about what it means to to share the promise of Christ's new creation. That's that's our mission statement. Nice. Our mission statement is not to be a press is to share the promise of Christ's new creation. And so that's going to happen in all kinds of modes. Um, So multimodal delivery is a key part of of our future.
0: That's exciting, Lynn. Thank you so much for this. We're gonna have show notes that we uh, link people over to invite resources, obviously to your pages, um, to give people a chance to learn more, to follow along in your journey of growth. Um, as y'all sort of break through in this new 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 age, I you I mean there's all these new ages of publishing, but you're in the new new age now, uh, <laughs> and, and it's it's uh, it's so exciting uh, to be a part of. So, uh, hope you all have enjoyed uh, this episode with Lynn. Obviously, more in the show notes, uh, and we are so excited for your growth and and all that continues there. And we hope to see y'all again for another episode of the Faith Revisited podcast. If you have not already done so, do take a moment to fill out. Uh, a rating for us. A five-star review is much appreciated. Molly and I enjoy having those as we continue to grow. This podcast as two millennials who just like to ask really big questions about faith and life together. We'll see you next time on the Faith Revisited podcast.